And now I'm going to pass the baton over to Keith Kawaka, who's going to introduce our program today. Take it away, Keith. Uh, thank you, Scarlett, and welcome to today's program. Um, as Scarlett said, my name is Keith Kawaka. I'm, I serve as one of the co-chairs for the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion program team for ACUI. And we're really excited about this program and the great number of participants that are here. Um, the program has de been developed to really provide a space for leaders of our community, which you see on the screen, um, to discuss um, issues about core competence um, of white privilege, um, how racism is present, pres uh, present in union activities, professionals' daily work, um, provide strategies for dealing with resistance, consider aspects of our own racism, and identify common mistakes that we all may be making because of our privilege. Um, so first, let me introduce our, our esteemed colleagues, which some of you probably already recognize. Um, first, Mike Coleman. Mike is the Dean of Student Engagement at Wake, uh, Wake Technical Community College. Prior to his um, years at Wake Tech, Mike worked in the college and activities profession for over 20 years and has been an advocate for expanding the conversation of diversity within the college union. Mike's passion lies in finding new and efficient ways to use technology in higher education, exploring new ways to introduce multicultural programs to campus. Mike has been a longtime volunteer for ACY, serving in both regions three and seven in various roles, serving on the association level as a member of the 2011 conference program team, 100th anniversary celebration task force, and at large member of the, of the um, board of trustees, and just the third man of color to serve as president of ACY. Through volunteering, he has worked to foster dialogue and equity within the association. And during his time with ACY, Mike has been awarded the two-year college professional service award, the Rebus Cox, Rebus A. Cox Memorial Award for Multicultural Education, and the Smith Steele Award for Professional Staff Service. Welcome, Mike Coleman. Our, our second esteemed co um, colleague on the panel um, is Jeremy Shank, who serves as the executive director of the Morris University Center and special assistant for graduation transitions at Northern Northwestern University. Within his role, Jeremy oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the Norris University Center and its seven satellite and performance venue spaces across the campus. He manages the contractual relationship with, with the bookstore, catering and food retail, coaches the commencement planning team, and serves as the special assistant for the graduation transition. Jeremy is the president-elect of ACUI and has served in a variety of roles with the association, including regional leadership teams, the 2010 conference planning team, regional director, co-chair of the regional audit task force, co-chair of the regional restructuring task force, and has served two terms as an at-large member of the board of trustees. Our third panelist, welcome Jeremy, our third panelist is Jennifer Zamora. Jennifer is the director of student programs for the University Unions at the University of Texas at Austin. In her role, she has the privilege of working with students to plan and execute concerts, movies, lectures, and cultural programs for over 50,000 of their peers. She is immediate past president of the association and has served in a variety of roles within the association, including I lead facilitator, a member of conference program teams, regional leadership team, and the educational council. And finally, our facilitator for today's program, Amy Liss. Um, she, Amy is the senior associate director for the Office of Multicultural Affairs at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and is a, is a member of the ACUI Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Program team and has been a stalwart volunteer for ACUI for many, many years. So with that, I turn it over to Amy Liss. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you again for joining us. I do have one request for our entire participants today. Please, please share any questions that you have in our chat box. We really want to be able to hear from the membership today, be able to engage in a really robust conversation that allows us 
to take action steps on our campus. That came up on the poll as one of the most important things for folks attending today. So please ask any question. Keith and I will be monitoring the chat box throughout the session as well. And to get us started, again, thank you panelists. We would like to hear a little bit about how each of you define white privilege and how you address that in your daily work each day. Mike, will you kick us off? Yeah, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Amy, uh, so much. Uh, so as, as I look at, uh, you know, how do you define white privilege? Uh, so I look at that as being able to move through your life, uh, you know, your day-to-day -day life with the expectation that your needs are going to be able to, to be met right then and there, um, and being able to have access, um, easy access to the world around you. So that is sort of how I would define it. Jeremy, would you like to add? Yeah. Yeah, when I think about white privilege, um, it's the inherent advantage possessed by, by me, by people who look like me, solely based on our race in this society that's been built upon really since our existence, um, racial inequality and injustice. And, you know, I, I try to think about that from um, our, the daily aspects. And, and, you know, it's in the moment when I think about it and I see it, it's oftentimes uh, a benefit or a privilege that both is seen and unseen uh, by many. And so that's, that's kind of, I agree with Mike in the definition. Jen? Yeah, so the best way I've ever you know, heard white privilege described, and I, I use it a lot, is it's like going up the es up escalator. And you are just going about, you're going up the up escalator, never really recognizing that um, people of color are trying to go up the down escalator. And so, you know, you're both kind of doing the same things, but you don't have the same challenges that are um, inherent just in who you are. Um, and so I think that's one of the ways I've looked at it. And um, as someone who is white passing, I sort of think I'm on the stairs, right? I may not be on the up escalator. Um, like white folks are, and I'm also not going up the down escalator. I don't have as many things coming my way, but I, but I have this sort of different place and different perspective. And so um, that's one of the ways I like to think about it is you're, what's coming at you, what's not coming at you as you're trying to go about your life. Would anyone like to add about some of the ways or approaches that they have been addressing white privilege on their campuses? Yeah, I'm happy to, to kind of kick off that conversation. You know, as I think about um, how I address it daily, um, I would say I address it, but I also, what's become clear to me is I don't dress it nearly as much as I need to. Uh, in the moment when I see injustice, I'm quick to take action and become vocal about it. Um, I work towards creating teams and spaces that are inclusive. Um, I have conversations from from the institution's leadership table uh, all the way to my kitchen table about social justice, diversity, and equity. But these last few weeks have really made me see my failures and struggles. Um, 
they've made me see that where I, I don't speak up as loud as I should or, or where I'll shut off the TV or social media out of exhaustion, which is the definition really an exploitation of that white privilege. Um, white privilege is the ability to turn it off um, when it gets exhausting while knowing that many of my friends, my family, my community who live this every day never get to turn it off. Um, so, you know, I think about it and I think that it's something that we have to do better, that I have to do better uh, on uh, being in and dealing with this um, and speaking up louder um, daily. And, uh, go, go ahead, Jim. Okay. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say this is the way I've been addressing it for a long time. I think there's um, some new things that I've learned over the past couple of years that make me look at things differently. But I think I used to look at my own self trying to get a seat at the table, right? Trying to do the things I could do to get a seat at the table. And I think the way I'm trying to address privilege now is by moving the table and, you know, not playing into these structures that call for that. And so figuring out ways that, you know, things I can do to make leadership, to make power more accessible to people who haven't been able to, to have that simply because there have been more things standing in the way. And so I think, you know, looking at what does that look like, taking a closer look at um, what things mean for our students. It can be very difficult for students of color to have leadership positions because they have to work. And so, or they live farther from campus or some of those. So thinking about all of these structural and systemic things that exist, that there may not be things within my own organization that I perceive as racist, but the structure and the system that we live in is and has been. And so how can I kind of get past those systems and structures to make more space for students to be able to come in to hold leadership positions, things like that. That's the level I can work on right now is with the students that I work with. And, you know, I definitely have a, a different perspective, right? Being a, a black male, um, living in, in, in this world, uh, uh, seeing the images, um, and um, while they are not new, they are now uh, in our face, right? Um, so, you know, for, for years, we have uh, been just trying to level up in this game of life. Um, and a lot of what I'm doing is, is answering questions, right? Um, is, um, and, and, you know, how, you know, what is it like? What, how, how do you, you know, uh, deal with certain things? And, and I will tell you the, the biggest thing that I've been able to stress is, you know, as we are in this pandemic um, currently with the coronavirus of having to think about um, where we go out, um, what we wear, who's coming with us, where are we going, um, you know, who's going to be there. That's the pandemic that, you know, black people, people of color have lived their entire lives of trying to navigate and uh, making sure that, you know, you have your ID or, or you know, how am I dressed? How am I going to be perceived? Uh, so trying to uh, provide, um, you know, best examples of, of those things. So uh, that dialogue can continue. Um, but so that that's what I would say is how, you know, I've been navigating. 
Thank you, everybody. Why do you think so many white people struggle and sometimes, frankly, really rail against the idea about privilege? Well, <clears throat> I'll take that one to start. I think if we go back to my escalator analogy that I used earlier, I think it's because you didn't pick that escalator. You didn't put yourself on it. So you don't realize that there's any other way to get up the stairs, right? And so I think it can be really difficult because, you know, folks have their own struggles and challenges and those kinds of things that are happening. And so they can't see past what's happening on the outside. And, you know, you grow up and everyone, all the heroes and heroines on movies look like you and the politicians in your town look like you and, you know, the CEOs look like you. And so you don't recognize that there are other things that might be happening out there. And I don't, I don't always think it's an intentional thing. I think it's just simply you, you don't realize it. And my hope is that once people are made aware of it, then you can't unsee it, right? Once you have more knowledge, more information, someone turns your head so that you can see the folks um, trying as hard as they can to go up the down escalator and really having that struggle through no fault of their own, that you can't unsee it. And that's how we can start to move forward. But I think it comes from a place of not knowing. Yeah, I agree. I think that for many, um, white people, they think acknowledging that white privilege exists erases how hard they may have had to work to get where they are in life. Um, and white privilege doesn't mean that everything has been given to you, although there are plenty of examples of how that does exist. It means that no matter how hard you had to work to get where you are in life, there were societal privileges and benefits that existed for you along that journey um, that you likely never even saw. Um, and I think as as people are um, forced to face that, um, there's this um, either this re reflection that results in a, a guilt or an argument against or a defensiveness that this wasn't, this wasn't given to me. Um, and um, I don't think people are looking for you to feel guilty about, about white privilege. They're looking for you to acknowledge it, to see the lived experiences of your, of your friends and colleagues, um, and to then use your voice to help fight it. Um, and, but I think there's this quick reaction that by acknowledging it, it takes away something along that I did. Yeah, and I would just add that uh, privilege is often, uh, you know, looked at as uh, wealth, right? It's looked at, you know, uh, a money value. Um, and so it can, um, that can cause a, a sense of like, well, you know, that, that's not me, but, it, you know, you would think that, okay, is it, uh, you know, it's, it should be reasonable for a person uh, to the extent of compassion and access as they move through the world. And, you know, like, what, what is it that this would not happen? Um, you know, and, and, you know, just the same thing as, as Jeremy said, like, you, you have people that, uh, you know, may have um, problems or challenges, but no matter the you know, what problem you're dealing with or what challenge you have, um, those problems are not enhanced because of the color of your skin. Um, you know, and, and I think also that when you discuss white privilege, uh, sometimes it can come across as an attack and then that opens the door to that fragility. Earlier, Jeremy had mentioned the ability to turn off the TV, literally and figuratively, 
when experiences feel overwhelming. And Mike also just shared, this is not new information that people are seeing. And at the same time, a lot of folks, especially white folks, are outraged with surprise and sort of balancing, I didn't see this, what is the guilt that I didn't see this happening? Um, do you have any thoughts or insight on how to process that appropriately and funnel that into a productive response? You know, I, I'll, I'll share a situation that um, I, I experienced uh, earlier this week. It, it was like, actually, it was last Friday with a, a friend from college who um, we go back and forth a lot on the concept of, of, of um, white privilege and his struggles with it. And, um, you know, one of those friends where at, at some point you're like evaluating, okay, is it time just to hit the unfriend on social media because we're just clearly not seeing eye to eye? And is it... And he messaged me on Friday and he said, you know, Jeremy, I've never had heard of Juneteenth before, never read about it in my history books, never talked about it anywhere. Um, and that's an embarrassment, he said. So I don't know like what it all means yet, but I, I know that it means that I'm questioning why haven't I heard about this? Um, for him, that was this little win that I took that as an opportunity to then kind of go a little deeper with him on that. Um, but it was a it was a difference for him than I have than he's had throughout you know the twenty years I've known him. Um, but it was it was some growth, and I and I just was excited to see that growth in that moment, and look at how could I feel that a little bit and uh, and not push him to to the point where he, he shut down but uh, was still able to, to have some additional conversations. Um, but it, it, it's hard, I think, to imagine because there are people who don't, they, they don't, it, this does seem all new and it's not, uh, um, it's hard not to get frustrated, but in the same point, you also want to take that opportunity that they're seeing it and try to help build upon it. As we move a little bit into talking about our college campuses, one of the things we will ask folks to think about are any concrete examples of white privilege that you've seen or heard throughout student unions or student affairs. Um, related to that, we've had a great converse, uh, question come up in our, from our audience, and you can feel free to answer those, you know, sort of simultaneously or really focus on the question, certainly, from our audience member. For our students, there is a deep a distrust between campus security and students of color. For instance, students of color are stopped more often and required to show ID uh, more than white students. How have you navigated similar situations? So, uh, I would say that uh, I mean, that, that speaks true to my everyday life, uh, you know, and too many times I have to share examples of my own life uh, with our students of color. Um, and, you know, I, we've, you know, we've, we've had instances where you have two organizations uh, having similar type events and 
you know, I've been on campuses where they will say like, okay, well, we need police presence, security presence at this event, um, but there's no concern about the other. Um, what's the difference? Well, you know, there's the student group that needs, um, you know, security is, uh, you know, an organization uh, with students of color. Uh, and the other one isn't. You know, I, I, I had a forum uh, recently with um, some males of, of color um, for one of our programs uh, and, you know, had a conversation with them of just, you know, how they're feeling uh, right now during this time. Um, we, we had a really great mix of, of uh, international students as, as well as um, uh, Latinx students, um, black males, uh, and it was uh, interesting to hear one of the conversations where uh, a student coming uh, from another country said that they could not understand everything that was going on. And what is it that they need to do to stay alive here? Um, and it literally broke me down to the point of this young man is asking, you know, how to navigate in, you know, their everyday life as a college student to stay alive and not be, um, you know, looked at as a threat. Um, and, you know, we, we all the time have these conversations with students as a, you know, why am I being stopped? Why, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that, um, I'm complying. If I comply, you know, what do I do? Now we're seeing, you know, if you comply, things may happen. We see that if you run, things may happen. So um, it is, uh, you know, unfortunately, one of those conversations that um, you just have to stress that, you know, while this is unfortunately the norm for many, um, you know, these are things that you can do. These are the conversations that you can have with your peers to educate uh, and just as you know we are pushed to learn european culture let's push to understand black culture and not just you know african culture but caribbean culture black american culture um, so you know um, that may not be the the best answer uh, but those are the conversations uh with with similar students that i'm currently having You know, I think, I think what I'll add to it when we look at how power and privilege plays out on our campuses, uh, you know, many of our universities were, were early on designed to actually re reproduce this racial inequality um, from being, you know, how a legacy gets into an institution or a student organization and um, how we schedule our events from policies that govern what type of events we allow within our facilities from the artwork on our walls to the alumni we recognize and celebrate uh, from the staff on our teams to how we structure our searches. Um, I think it's, it's an embedded into the, the tiny fragments of the institution and it really has to be broken down uh, the same way. You have to, in each of those situations, when, you, when you're seeing these pieces, you have to ask those hard questions. You have to reflect on, your, on yourself. Um, I heard a person once say, uh, when I was in Virginia at VCU, they said, um, if you aren't intentionally inclusive, you run the risk of being accidentally exclusive. 
And I think almost anymore now, um, I, and I really liked that quote, but even now as I reflect on it, I think if you're not intentionally inclusive, you're intentionally exclusive. At this point where we are at now, you, we have to be taking and uh, thinking about how are we in, intentionally inclusive uh, in all of those aspects. When we're looking at our advisory boards, when we're looking at our staffing, when we're looking at our policies and procedures and what structures would, uh, if we look at our events and we're seeing that um, our, our events are, are, are in our spaces are not representative of the campus, why is that? And we have to ask those hard questions. I think that's also where we have to step in as advocates where we can. So I can't control what happens with our campus security office, but I can control the meeting where, you know, we're told we need more security for one group over another. And that's my job or my staff's job as well as a group to push back and ask why or say no, um, or, you know, come back in those ways. I, I can't always be there um, when our students of color are stopped and ID and, and that's, unfortunate that it happens and it's a real problem and I can't I while I can't fix that I can go if those students feel comfortable enough with me to tell me that that's happening that's when I can do my job as, as being an advocate and come in and ask why it's happening um, and bring that up for them so that they don't have to but I think that the first step in that is making sure that our students feel comfortable with us as staff members to have those conversations to let us know so that we can together figure out how we can help them address it so that they don't have to go through it again in those circumstances and so that's you know one of the ways i think my team and i try to address that one of the things i'm hearing from all the panelists in terms of themes are the importance and it's interesting to say this to folks at acui around relationship building how do you gain credibility in these conversations where people have different levels of education, different levels of personal experience, even personal value, if I'm going to be honest, and being able to think through what's the long-term relationship that if you know, for example, the head of security, what's the likelihood you can have a more productive conversation, whether it's one conversation. In our world, we often talk about sometimes the mark of a really good conversation is the willingness to have another one and building, building that. So thank you for that. There's a similar question, uh, or to add on to the previous question, someone has asked, if you supervise students that are black persons of color, how do you effectively reach out to check on those students with everything that's happening right now? How do you know who to check with? You don't want to leave anyone out in the check-in, but don't want to assume someone's identity. I mean, I'm going to come back to the what did your relationships look like with these students beforehand and are you checking on them because it's about them or is it about you? I think asking that question is really important. Like who, who are you checking on? Um, and I think you have to ask yourself that question first and then see from there, okay, what, what relationships do I have? What can I anticipate? students' needs are, um, and how can we, again, create spaces that if they want to talk to us, that they know we're there and that they know that we're open to have that conversation. How can we advocate for them? Um, how can we involve them in important conversations? And um, some of our students are having a conversation with our university president next week. Um, and so facilitating that conversation, I think was really important um, so that they can have a voice here. And so I think it's, 
but I do think that first question is what are what are we wanting to know? Um, because right now maybe isn't the time that they want to hear from us. Um, and so, you know, figuring out how can we maybe work through actions um, when words may seem difficult or um, or we're not sure who to approach. So uh, to piggyback, uh, you know, off of what Jennifer said, I, I think it's important to know that uh, before you you reach out, it's not about you. It's not about your feelings. We don't need tears. We don't, you know, um, it's it's truly, you know, how is someone feeling? Um, we. Uh, you know, you look at this in terms of um, the students that you do have good relationships with or that know you. Why is that, right? It's because of that relationship. It's because uh, you show a, a concern and an interest into them. Um, is, is now the right time to start that with a, with a, with a student of color? Uh, you know, I, I would say that if you are truly interested in how they are feeling, how they are doing, of course. Uh, and I think it is important to say like, hey, you know, I, you know, I wanna check in on you. I wanna see how you're doing. What can we do as a organization to support you during, during this time? I think that, uh, you know, some things that, that we need to look at as well is the, the high stress, the high anxiety right now, uh, the, on top of COVID-19, we're dealing with this. So imagine this is, you know, one time that I could say that we are all experiencing, you know, from faculty and staff to students, we're all, you know, we're at home where we have the stress of, you know, the coronavirus, we have um, the stress of the images that we're seeing on TV. So we are all experiencing this. We all have some type of stress going on, um, but, now is, is, is also, I believe, a good time to make sure that our students know what um, resources are available, what, um, you know, for mental health support, for uh, food, and food insecurities and things of that nature. So, you know, not, don't need a pity party, but true um, heartfelt like outreach. Um, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? What can we do to, to support you? So. Yeah, I totally agree with with Jen and Mike on this. I mean, I think um, if it's it needs to be authentic, it needs to be authentically you, or else I think at that point it's going to have the reverse effect. And so, um, I think the um, you know that that outreach um, and those connections um, and and not making it about you and, and being about focusing in on, on them and what they need. And, uh, but doing it in a way, if it's, if you've never had a relationship or a conversation with this student, and then this is your first one, it's probably not going to be viewed as authentic at that point. Um, and so, and I think it really points back to something that Jen and I think Amy, you hit on this as well. Is this to me, this is really about then why it's really important that you've, work hard to develop these relationships across campus um, even prior to the, then when things are happening. Um, it, it's, it, to me, it seems a little, 
it's hard to do it in the moment after. Absolutely. If you really care and care about addressing your privilege and care about really dismantling systems, then you would care all the time, not just in peak times or popular times or trendy times. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on to university systems um, pretty quickly. Wanted to share uh, one question as a follow up to something that Jeremy had shared earlier. A question had come up and said, what might being intentionally exclusive mean for multicultural centers or safe spaces as campuses move forward with these conversations? You know, I think we're seeing on campuses ac across the, the country right now, um, where in student unions in particular, where you're starting to see these multicultural centers um, or identity-based spaces developing outside of the student union. Um, and um, I think it's both one, something that we should um, both embrace and also then spend some time looking at ourselves to say, why is that? What is it about what we're doing that, is there anything that we could be doing differently? Um, and so, the, you know, I, I, I think the, I, you know, I've asked in situations um, at, at one of my previous campuses when we looked at where our, um, our MPHC organizations were having their meetings and events and they weren't doing it in the student union. Um, and it was from, in part, from uh, systemic uh, uh, policies that existed for years about whether or not they could host their events in the evening in the space. Um, and just by saying no, they felt like that space was completely unwelcoming. And so we had to start breaking that down a piece at a time. Um, we started to look at how could we have those events in the facility, and all of a sudden it became a space where they felt more comfortable with. And so um, I think you have to address that um, as you see it, uh, and you have to ask those hard questions, and then you have to be okay being in the uncomfortableness of that, that reflection and what that means as for you, for your department, um, and what you need to do on campus. Micro-Jen, would you like to add anything? We've had a question come up that says, when I see the call for statues to be taken down and systems to burn, it makes me think about the work that was done a few years ago in regards to Porter Butts. How should folks on campus deal with the taking down structures, signs, systems in the union? How should unions focus more on context of cultures? So I want to start by saying I don't have the answer to that. And I wish I did. I wish I had the answers to any of these things. And I, I don't. I'm not an expert. But I had a conversation um, with a friend of mine. So there is a statue at my undergraduate institution that's um, been big talk about removing lots of reasons. And I will tell you, when I was a student, I didn't I didn't think there was a problem with the statue. It was the first president of the institution. I assumed that's why he was there. Um, and in a lot of ways it is, but the conversation I had was that I cannot undo the fact that, um, that black students weren't allowed at that institution until the seventies. I can't undo that. But if taking that statue down and moving it somewhere else, um, not having it be in the center of campus makes black students feel more comfortable attending, 
then there will be more black students who will want to attend and we can start to little by little chip away at this systemic piece that happened for so long. Um, I live and work in Texas. When our auditorium, where we show most of our um, our big speakers, right, our biggest venue that we have access to is named after a Confederate general. And I just had the conversation last week with my boss to say, I can bring the most talented people in the world to come and talk to our students. But if I'm putting it in this auditorium, then I'm doing a disservice to a lot of our students. Um, you know, we had Trayvon Merton's mother come and speak last year. And I think about the fact that like, would I put her in that space? Is that, is that welcoming? Is that who we are as a union? Is that who we are as a space? And so I think that, you know, we really need to think about how are we serving our students and what does that mean? And so, you know, for me, it's how can we continue to open doors? And if that means that they need to be moved and gone, then that needs to happen. And it can't just be our black students asking for that and having those conversations. It, it just can't. So we have to figure out what our role is in having, helping that move along. I think this also gets to the, the, um, the difficulty in that um, the different hats that, that uh, student union professionals have to wear in terms of kind of a, an, an, an advocate, an advisor, an administrator, and, and when you, you advocate for these changes uh, with your supervisor, with your senior leadership, um, and ultimately a decision comes back that doesn't allow for that? And then how do you communicate that to the students? And I think it really uh, becomes that difficult spot because uh, you, can, you can advocate, you can, you can fight hard for it. In the end, the senior leadership may opt to, to not let some changes happen. And um, I think you ha at that point, it's how do you handle that? And what does that mean? And in some cases, you know, it may mean that it's time to look at a different institution. And in other cases, it's that you just want to continue. To, you have to look for other ways to, to continue to make the case um, and, and look for data to help drive that. So. Thank you. Uh, Jeremy, you really just offered a comment that I think is a question that's come up a number of times. Can folks offer some insight or suggestions about dealing with resistance, especially if you are in that second position where you would like to continue where you're at and continue to advocate and work? Um, what are ways to keep at it or different ways to be able to move forward? So again, I don't know the answer. I wish, if I knew all these answers, y'all, I could just be on a speaking tour. Um, I, I think that for me, when you, when you reach that, because inevitably it happens, I think for me, I, I try to turn towards sponsorship. So I think we talk about mentorship a lot, but I really like to talk about the concept of sponsorship. So I may not be able to change the name of this theater. Um, but I am in a position where I can, you know, there are oftentimes I'm asked to choose 
students to be on search committees or students to be in these conversations. And so it's on me to find students who I can help advance into roles where they may have more of an opportunity to be a part of the movement, right? Um, or, you know, doing what I can to, to advance things in other ways. Um, and I think, you know, student body presidents on campuses, a lot of times can help get things done. And so how can we kind of coach and, and help and advocate for those students in those instances where where I may feel like I've hit a brick wall, um, but a student may be able to get a little farther on that. And so how can I sponsor that student and how can I put, make sure that my students are in places where decisions are being made? So being an advocate, uh, you know, uh, just, you want to make sure that, you know, students, and, and all the, the data and the, the research shows that when there is a strong sense of belonging, you have greater success, you, um, you know, your retention levels um, are, are high, your graduation rate is, is high. Uh, so what does that sense of belonging look like? You know, we know what it looks like for, for you know, white students, majority students. Um, but what does that look like for you know, students of color, uh, being that advocate, uh, you know, as, as Jen mentioned, you know, when you have opportunities, sometimes uh, telling someone like, hey, you should run for this or you should do this. Uh, hey, I'll help you with, you know, with your application or things like that. Um, but also having that true sense of care, right? How much care are you given, give, giving to, to your students, um, you know, think about that student that you may go the extra step for um, with connecting them with different people on campus or different resources. Now, think about that student of color. Are you doing the same thing for them? Um, you know, so there are, you know, when you are met with resistance, um, you know, you have to push more care to your students, more support, more just being able to, to be that advocate. Um, and, you know, of course, there's always going to be things, you know, as they say, above your pay grade, things like that. Um, but it is, is truly being able to provide as much support as you can. Uh, and then also educating and training, you know, your, your, your staff, right? Um, those that are going to have more contact. I know that, you know, as, you know, we get higher up in positions, our student connection starts to, you know, go down. So we have to make sure that, you know, our staff uh, are trained and, and are able to have those conversations. Uh, but then also, how much do our staff look like our students, right? And making sure that our students feel comfortable coming to us. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think really that being able to control what's in your sphere of influence at that point and, and look for things. And so you may not be able to change the name of the, of the, the theater, uh, but you can control what goes in, you know, what kind of events are going on inside of it. You can control what artwork is on the outside of it. Um, you can do these other, take these other steps that, uh, uh, that try to help address that piece. Um, and uh, there, and then I think it's also important to develop 
you know, that it really gets back to this network. It's good to have a network of professionals across the country that you can reach out to. And I think that's one of the main things I really love about ACUI is that um, you're not in this alone. And when you have to navigate these difficult situations with something that you really want to, that you're, you're advocating with and you, and you're struggling with the senior leadership response and you're trying to network how to do it. You can pick up the phone and call somebody and I can call Mike and say, Mike, can you help me talk through this? What can I, is there something I'm not an angle I'm not thinking about? Um, you know, I can call Jen and, and process out some pieces. I, so really looking at those relationships and using that to help identify possible paths forward uh, within your sphere of influence, I think is critical because uh, it could be a very lonely spot to, 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 to feel like you can't make a change and you also can't really talk about it with anybody. And that's where I think these relationships are critical. Uh, one question that's not in the chat, it's a question that I would ask if I were typing into the chat as we talk about change will take time and all of the things we say that are nice and that you get a no sometimes and we're still going for it. And I appreciate all of that. I would say that if I were a panelist today and it's real. I also wonder how do you maintain credibility with the students that's so important who may be expecting the immediate change, whether they know or you don't, whether they know or not that you're the decision maker or not the decision maker, but how do you say, how do you communicate that in a way that, that works for yourself or others? It's so tight, Jeremy, I think you said it, like it's so, it's a tough spot. I think that there are actions that you can take, right? And I think, you know, when we were talking earlier about how you reach out to students or not, and I think someone mentioned in the chat, like that you, you have to let them know that you care. And so, you know, we've been thinking about that and trying to do that through action. And so, um, one of our student committees um, is the African American Culture Committee, and they they worked on a statement um, that they put out, and then they had a offline conversation with us about things that they thought were important. And so, one of those things that we've all talked about as a staff is supporting Black-owned businesses when we're purchasing things for events. And so, that is something very tangible that I can do. Is I can be the one because I set the tone for my office. I can say, and I have said to my staff. Okay, here's the list of black owned food vendors. Um, and here's where we're going to start first. And we're going to support in that way. That's something that these students have asked of us. And that is 100% something that we can do. Is it going to work every time? No. Is, is that menu option going to be available every time? No. But if that's where we start, and that's the place we're starting from, then we can honor that request that our students made of us. And then we can speak to that through action and say, yep, that makes perfect sense. Let's do that, right? What are some other things that we can do? And let's sit down and have a conversation with our students and ask, because I don't want to go down the road of something that isn't what they wanted. Um, but let's talk about what, what we can do. And then when they see me be the one to say, this is what we're doing, I think that's a really important step in that direction. Um, and they're not the ones having to fight for it, but we're the ones saying, yeah, yeah, this is our standard operating procedure now. Things like that. Yeah, and, and I'll just uh, piggyback on that, Jen, and say that I think that there's even the opportunity within our roles to say, 
that how do we do that even contractually with our relationship with our vendors that we're, we're that we have on the campus so in our food service contracts <clears throat> writing into a contract that they have to do business locally and with uh, minority owned businesses putting that into your bookstore contract and requiring that they report on that statistic every year um, that's a way to create that local investment um, and to do it contractually to say this is this is this is important to us and it's gonna you're gonna report on that every year um, and we and we have a threshold that we expect you to hit with that um, and so to, I think that's a, another way to take that opportunity and I will just say that students know who you are so you have to you have to be yourself and uh, I, I think that it is important to, again, show that you care, right? Because students are going to uh, peel that onion back and they're going to see who you really are, see what type of administrator you are, see what type of advocate you are. Uh, so as, as much lip service as you can provide, they are going to be able to dissect that and, and truly know uh, how much of a supporter and how much of an advocate you are. I was curious if a lot of folks have mentioned, again, partnering and relationships. Have any of you experienced or developed partnerships across campus that may not be the obvious ones that we might think about, um, you know, either directly in our units or other areas? Have there been any farther reaching university partners that have helped you move closer to justice, done advance any of the work? So I will, I will say that um, uh, from the community college level, uh, there is an organization called uh, Achieving the Dream, and they do a lot of work for um, equity uh, in your, uh, at your institution, but also in uh, the classroom and with faculty. So, uh, you know, we have, uh, I've had really great conversations as well as partnerships uh, from the academic side to make sure that we are you know, supporting students both in and out, but then also uh, working with faculty, training faculty um, with that, uh, you know, what's their perception of a student, you know, uh, in the classroom and um, is the way someone looks, does that change how they interact with them? And, um, you know, how likely are you to, you know, throw someone out or do, you know, do certain things um, to a, to a student based off of, you know, um, how they look and things of that nature. So uh, we, we've had a really great partnership uh, with the academic side, which has been huge. And um, especially in our current environment, um, you know, learning on, online, uh, you have faculty that never taught online uh, or, you know, may have um, some angst with that. And, and now you have faculty and staff in, in that, that boat. So, um, we are definitely looking at the equity piece uh, from an online standpoint as, as well. But I will tell you, having an academic partner um, is, is definitely huge for us. I think there can be um, different relationships that come about that you never would have thought would have been important. So like developing a, a strong relationship with the procurement office to where then when you're, you're, you're wanting to, um, you know, 
uh, address um, being able to purchase from 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 local vendors and being able to to write things into your contract and for them to be able to understand the why um, and so from from procurement to um, our facilities department um, we had a, a our virtual commencement um, last week but we had a a banner that was put up on top of um, a congratulations graduates banner that was you know talking about kind of defunding from police and and funding um, our black students well you know that fm staff member who our facility staff member who's who found that we had we actually put it onto a tree and positioned it right gave it even more visibility space because of that relationship um, and still allowed for the congratulations graduates banner to be shown. And we, so we shared both messages um, and that was because of those relationships. And so you have to, to really take that time to invest in your peers across the campus uh, who may not experience this on a daily basis. I mean, I think in student affairs, we were able to talk about this a lot, but a lot of our counterparts and other uh, functions of the university don't. And so when they have that opportunity to, to, to engage in those conversations um, with us, I think it's important that we, we use those as educational moments and build those relationships. We have a two-part question that has come in. As leaders or heads of your own offices and departments, how do you engage your direct reports who may be on different levels of understanding in moving your campus forward and making real change? What tangible steps would you advise taking with your staff after you've posted the official statement of inclusivity? Um, we have, I think some of my staff members are on this call today, so they can comment in the chat if I'm speaking out of turn, but we talk about it a lot. Um, and we've talked about it a lot more in the past. Um, actually, we started having these conversations um, right when the pandemic hit because we volunteered with our student emergency services to help students um, who didn't have computers, technology, that kind of thing. And so we got to see a little bit more of this picture at that point. And we started having these conversations. As a staff, we've taken the IDI, the Intercultural Development Inventory, and we've talked about the things that sort of the where we are, right? We've had pretty frank conversations about where we are um, on this spectrum and have continued to have those conversations. Our university president gave us the afternoon um, of Juneteenth as time for reflection. And so we did that. And in our first staff meeting back, everyone talked about what they did and what movie they watched, what conversation they had, what article they read. It felt like um, it was a book report day or something. I don't know, but we all had that conversation about what, we're, what we've learned and what new questions we have for each other or we want to find the answers to. And so we've made the space for it. Um, and taken that time because it is important. And um, that's how we have started each of our staff meetings, I guess for the past probably three weeks now, um, is just not being afraid to sit down and have the conversation um, and, and address and then share resources with one another because none of us know everything, but together we can kind of all talk about our perspective and what we've learned. I had a, a colleague who was um, at another institution who was sharing with me, uh, I think from the, really from a, um, a, a, a point of wanting to do good, was sharing how 
how, how hard it is right now to be having these conversations at a time when we are going to be facing um, s significant financial issues as the institution and at a time where you really want to be able to invest in this. Um, and, and I think the, the, the thing that I've, I've come to really appreciate is that we need it. The reason why these conversations are so important right now is because the resources are going to be tight and we need to be looking at everything through a racial equity lens. And what does that, what does that mean for our decision-making as we're going forward? And so I think um, what we're going to be doing a lot more as a team and what we're going to be doing a lot more as a division, as a campus is talking about that as we're going into fall planning in terms of keeping that, that racial equity lens is what we're looking at our decisions through um, and ensuring that we're, we don't let a, a lack of resources stop, uh, stop us from making the advancements that need to happen. In fact, they need to, that, that needs to be a, even more of a priority now as we go forward. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would say that we all have <clears throat> our own uh, personal as well as professional narrative. And, um, you know, one thing that I, always go to is why are we here um, and there there is something about higher education there's something about working with students that is you know attracted you to this role uh, to working uh, in this field and you know for me I, and I share it was that person that took that their extra time to get to know me to support me and so how are we able to provide that sense of belonging? How are we able to, to provide that care for another student to then, you know, continue our, our higher ed tree, right? Um, how are we able to show students that, you know, they, they, that we care and then what got you here, right? What was your interest? And are you able to provide that same environment or um, experience for, you know, for our students. One of the things we hear and talk about a lot is the continual need to get educated and that nobody is an expert and everybody has information to continue learning. How do you personally balance that with not losing commitment to action or in essence only letting the knowledge be what you do? So I, I will say that the balance is making sure that you're infusing what you learn into those actions, right? So making sure that um, as you, um, you know, learn new things, um, are exposed to, to new things, that you're finding ways to infuse that into your work, into your daily grind, uh, supporting students. Um, but then also sharing that information, right? So um, I, I think that there are tons of opportunities. You know, what are you doing in your uh, your staff meetings? Are there opportunities at the beginning of your your staff meeting to um, share, you know, uh, DNI information? Uh, not at the end, but at the beginning, so that you don't run out of time, right? Um, but then also 
how how can you infuse that learning to your conversations with students? Um, sometimes it's also being able to share that with with your students, right? So what forums do you have where you're having regular conversations with students? Um, because I think that I, as you learn sharing that information with students, and then you're also um, showing that you are open to um, you know enhancing you know your skills as well as knowledge but i i think that you you really have to try to balance as much as you can with that that information that education and and infusing it as much into your daily actions as a professional I think too, it's important to recognize that action is going to look different for everyone. Just like we talked earlier about everyone is in a different place or space. I think action also looks very different. So action for one person could mean taking this education, taking what they've learned and going to a protest, going to, right, doing certain, and, and for some people that might mean having a difficult conversation with a family member for the first time. Um, and one action isn't better than the other, it's action based on your education. And it's starting that there. I think sometimes we can fall into this trap where we think we have to do a certain thing, but it's what, what works for you in that moment and how can you share what you've learned at whatever level that makes sense for you. Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe action is putting a sign in your yard. Maybe action is my action lately. I've now been watching city council meetings via Zoom. I'm like that person. I wrote a letter to my city council member for the first time ever, right? That's one way that I'm trying to take action that's different than I've ever done before. Um, and so that may look really different um, to someone else, but I think it's, just the action piece is not being afraid to do something. Um, and I think we can get stuck in fear of doing the wrong thing and then do nothing. Um, and so I think figuring out what's comfortable for you and maybe, maybe you take that first step and then that leads you into something um, that feels different to you. But I think it's about meeting yourself where you are um, and doing the things that make sense for you. Yeah, I agree, Jen. I was going to say something similar in that I think this is a, a point where, um, a point in time where now it's, you know, in the past where people may take this as more of a, you know, hey, I, more of a spectator approach to, you know, I'm going to read, I'm going to, I'm going to reflect, I'm going to, I'm going to check in on people. Um, but now I think the, the, what we need to see is people to actually take the action. And, and what that action means, to Jen's point, it could be as small as addressing it with your family, which um, can oftentimes be really hard. Like that can be that, that a really hard conversation, but a, a, re, a necessary conversation to have. Um, and it means that it's okay that you're going to have to be placing yourself in an uncomfortable positions, uncomfortable spots, and, and wrestling with that and working your way through it and knowing you're not going to say everything right, <laughs> knowing that you're going to make mistakes and knowing that you can't let that then be the, okay, I'm going to stop now because uh, I, I tripped over my words. So now it makes more sense for me just to, to be quiet. And I think that's a fear that people will default to is even in good intentions that they then um, realize that it's, um, that they've, they've, they've tripped up or they've made this and they start to backpedal and say, okay, I just, I need to focus in and, and no, that's even more of a reason at that point to, to, to continue to move forward. And I will just, I, you both made really great points. Like 
we are going to make mistakes, right? We are human. We, we, we have dialogue and conversations with each other. We are going to make mistakes, but your heart will show. Your heart will show in those mistakes. Um, and if it's uncomfortable to you, okay, cool. Guess what? It's been uncomfortable for us forever. Um, so welcome to being uncomfortable, but uh, you know, have that dialogue and just show that good heart. Thank you, folks. Um, Jen, you really reminded me of this. Some of the conversations that we've had with our students is being able to think about what some of your natural skill sets are and how can you leverage them to take action. If you're a great public speaker or you're a great writer or you're really good at motivating other people, if you're the you know, student at the club fair that gets everybody to sign up, you know, how do you share that information and really encourage people to think about how they can contribute. I do think that it can become overwhelming to say, what do I do? And use that as an excuse to say, you know, I'm not perfect at that, or, you know, I don't know how to go to a protest or whatever the case might be, but really encouraging people to think about what they're good at and how to be able to put that to good use. Um, we are getting close to the end of our time. We do have two questions. Um, they are different, but I will share them together in case you see any um, relation between them. So feel free to take this however you wish. Um, what are some of the common missteps, um, you know, that you've seen some well-intentioned folks make or that maybe you have made yourselves, you know, this is certainly not another piece, um, you know, to, to think about or for folks to reflect on for themselves. And we've also had a question come up for the audience of, you know, for those folks of us who have specifically white privilege, how do you use that white privilege for good in a real way and not in a patronizing way or a surface level way? So some big questions to end us off for sure. I think if I look at any misstep in my life, right, like um, so much of that gets based on assumptions and, and making assumptions. And that's just part of a lot of human nature. And so I think, you know, being able to get past that, I think a misstep is being afraid to ask questions um, or take action. I think that that can be, at least speaking for myself, that can be a misstep. I think, um, you know, we're not going to get any of this right um, the first time or the second maybe right but i think the you need you have to keep trying i think about you know we talked about this at the beginning of this panel of you know it has felt different now but it's not nothing's changed i mean we you know, you look throughout history and these things have been happening. I can remember um, being younger and seeing Rod, the Rodney King riots and wondering, right? Like these, this isn't, this isn't new. Um, and so I think perhaps what happens is something happens, there's a little bit of activity and then we all move about our lives because it's not directly impacting us. And so I think the biggest misstep we could all take right now is, is not continuing to have the conversation and not continuing to move things forward. Um, because we don't want, I don't want to be 15, 20 years down the road and have the same chat about how nothing's changed. Um, and so I think that's really like that piece of it. I don't remember the second part of the question. 
Sure, for folks that are here with us today, uh, privilege, specifically white privilege, how can it be used to best move our campuses and our experiences forward um, in a way that's real, not patronizing and not surface level? Yeah, and I think just being here is the first step, right? You made a choice today to be on this particular call, um, which is a great tangible step in the right direction. And so um, if anything happens after this, maybe it's just having a conversation with someone on your campus or someone who in your life to say, oh, I did this panel today, you know, or what do you think kind of thing and starting that there. I think the piece about not being patronizing, like that's you got to think about that on that's on on you and all of the ways that you're interacting. But I think that if you come from a place of genuine care and empathy, then it makes that a lot easier. And I think I think if you can recognize and own that privilege, it's really that's the first step. I think there's a lot of times where people don't want to own that and we can't move forward until everybody says, yes, this is real. Yes, this is happening. And so I think if you can take that step to acknowledge it and the ways in which it's benefited you in your life, um, then you can start to go from there. Um, because you can't recognize that people aren't having the same opportunities as you are if you can't acknowledge that that privilege has existed for you. And so I think you've got to start there. And after that, you can start to make some real changes, um, not just in your life, but in your community and within the system. Yeah, I, I would definitely say learning, taking a step back and, and seeing all the things that um, in your day-to-day -day life um, that you may take for granted as like this can't be privileged but yeah you know some of the things are like just being able you know um i i had a great example with with a colleague of you know you have two individuals one's a black male one's a white male running in in their neighborhood and you know the white male may be you know people may say like oh like he's going for a run the black male it's why are they running in my neighborhood, right? Or what are they doing? Um, also, like understanding, like you know the things that trigger you. Um, you know the things that trigger you as a white person. You learn about the things that trigger people of color. Um, again, pushing that education piece, understanding uh, more more than just your your culture. Um, and I, I think that it's also important um, that uh, as, as much as possible, showing that, that care and, and being able to um, just make sure that the energy that you have right now, make sure you have it next week, make sure you have it next month, make sure you have it next year, because uh, that's going to be the, the, the tell sign of like, how far are you willing to push and be an ally uh, to, to dismantling um, racism, but also sort of this, this system that's been put in, in place? Um, you know, that, that's the biggest thing I can say is just make sure you have that same energy uh, in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think Mike and Jen really hit on it really well. I think the, 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 right now we're 
were long past due where we needed to take a more take more action and take more steps with this and and, and move forward um, be more vocal address more things it shouldn't be um, issues on campus you shouldn't have to wait for somebody else to raise it when you see the when you're seeing injustice when you're seeing things that are are inappropriate um, to take that step and raise it right away and i think um, once again i go back to and be okay with the fact that you're you're not gonna as jen said you you may mess up the first time or the second time you may, it may, the, the words may not come out right um but at least you're moving forward um and um i there's a um knowing that in those conversations it's it's important there's a garth brooks song that i i really love called the change and in it he talks about that you do what you do because it may not be able to make the change that you're wanting, but you do it to say to the world that the that you're not going to let it change you, and and sometimes that's what I think even to the point of just on campus and when you're looking at these policies or looking at building names or anything else, fighting the fight is is you fight it because it's worth the fight, um, and whether or not you get the change that you want at the end. Um, you continue to advocate, you continue to look for new ways to fight that fight, um, but you have to fight it. And I think that's where we're at now is we have to, we have to take a more aggressive approach with these pieces. And so uh, go ahead, Mike, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just saying, I, you know, once again, I, since this is, we were wrapping up, I was just going to end with it. How, how much of a privilege it's been to be on this with, with Jen and Mike, uh, two people who I respect a lot and Amy for you to be here as well. So I just wanted to say thank you to all three of you, because I think, um, I learned, I've learned even through this conversation today. So. And I'll get to know your students, you know, not just, the ones that look like you, um, but you know, get to know all of your students, and, and I think that that is going to to show you how amazing they are, and how much they have to offer, and how much you can learn from them as well. And it is great to be with my my colleagues as well. Yeah, I think something I've been thinking about as people are talking is also get to know yourself. Right. We talk about having these difficult conversations with our family members or our coworkers or any of these other people. But sometimes that really difficult conversation has to start with you um, and asking yourself some of those questions. Um, I took my first year of grad school. I took an opportunity hoarder quiz um, and I was fascinated to learn my own answers. Right. Things that I never thought about. Would you. Would you um, help a relative get an internship? And my answer to that was, well, of course I would, right? Of, of course I would do that without really thinking about what that means, right? And how that's hoarding opportunity. And I advise a sorority as a volunteer and I just had a conversation about how we are not going to, if people send in recommendation letters for women, that's fine, but we're not going to use them in the selection process because that's privilege right there to be able to have someone write a recommendation letter for you. But I had to have the difficult conversation with myself about how many recommendation letters I've written in the past for sorority recruitment, right? And so I think having that conversation with yourself is a really great first place um, to then opening the door to having conversations with other people. And the only, I just want to add one additional thing is, um, so I didn't start having conversations about um, 
privilege and oppression until college. And, and I remember the, my mentor uh, who, um, when I came in as a student, who invested the time and energy into helping me grow. And I actually reached out to him a couple of weeks ago just to thank him for taking on that piece to help educate me. But, but I also realized that in terms of as a parent, um, I don't want, we need to have those conversations with our kids early on. And so, um, and I find myself as I sit at our dinner table and when we have conversations with our, with our four kids, um, how much I learn from them through those conversations. And so for those of you who are, who are um, parents who are looking, you know, who are listening to this today, I would just say that, uh, it's important to have these conversations with your kids uh, and then have conversations with them about how they can feel more comfortable in doing that um, because they, they, they need to be able to go and stand up and when they're seeing it as well. And so, um, and I, I've been so impressed with um, uh, looking at what some of our, our, in our local, in our local high school, what, students are doing insane and it gives me such great hope for where we're going um, as a society and so um, and that's so for me it's really about how to make sure we're investing in our kids let them have that conversation whether they're four or five or six they're never too young to start having that conversation about what this means um, and so I just encourage everyone to do that you'll learn a lot from those conversations I want to thank all of you very much and especially the number of folks that we have with us now and for what you shared about your personal experience, your identities, your growth. Um, we know that one conversation and one panel discussion is not meant to say, oh, all problems are solved. What a wonderful session that was. Um, you are wonderful panelists, but I don't know if we could quite get that far in one conversation. Um, to that end, um, Scarlett, if you happen to have the information um, available we want to be able to share some additional resources as well. Um, if you take a look on the ACUI website, right on acui.org slash social justice, there are the websites down on the bottom of your screen. There are a number of resources that are based on topic area so that if there's a space that you're looking to fill some information, um, have a conversation. I just saw a lot of folks in the chat connecting. I really urge you to continue that connection. There's also in the beginning stages of a privilege challenge that will be coming up. We really encourage you to Jen's point earlier about getting to know yourself. Um, there's a number of ways to participate. It's a one week challenge. Um, really ask you to share that with other folks. Um, the person that asked about um, how to have these conversations with your staff, that might be a great tangible resource to be able to utilize. Um, and then we are also um, one of our colleagues, Jocelyn, is hosting a book club um, with the intent of taking that information again to infuse that other places and be able to move um, through education to action. Um, if anyone has questions or would like to follow up, um, I'll throw my email in the chat. Um, again, I don't pretend to be any type of expert, but I'm always 100% willing to have a conversation or connect folks as well. Um, one other thing, if you are interested in taking action and being able to follow some of these conversations, Regional leadership team applications are due tomorrow. There's no ACY program without a call and a shout out to volunteer. So if um, that's a good fit for you at this time, we know there's a lot going on, but if that is a good fit for you or being able to uplift somebody on your team, um, we encourage you to think about that as well. Um, I believe Scarlett is going to share our um, 
evaluation. Please share comments, um, anything that we can do to continue and enhance your experience. And um, thank you, everyone. Be excellent to yourself and each other.